0: Revelation chapter 1, if you would like to open your Bibles or if you have access to God's Word on your phone or an iPad or a tablet device, feel free to, to pull that out. As we get started, I want you to know that next Sunday morning, 9.15 a.m. during our Sunday school time, if you feel that God is calling you to be a member here at Emmaus, you haven't joined, you're looking for a church, you feel like God may be calling you here, we're having a membership class next Sunday morning during Sunday school at 915. We'll meet down near the lobby where the gym chapel is. They're on our, our west side building. And so if, if you are interested in membership, you've talked about that, that's something you want to pursue, that membership class is coming up this coming Sunday morning at, at 915, and we'd love for you to, uh, to be a part of that. Thank you, church family, for your, for your generosity, for the way that you serve in so many ways. We have some funerals coming up this week, and, and you all give of financially, and you give of your time to be able to minister to families. Uh, that phrase earlier, the power and presence of the great I am, that's the perfect introduction to what we're going to talk about this morning, and that'll make more sense as we, as we go through this. But what I would like for us to do is begin by reading Revelation Chapter 1, we're going to go ahead and start at verse 9 this week and read from verse 9 down through the end of the chapter. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things you have seen, those that are, and those that are are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Father, as we continue in worship this morning, we go through weeks quickly, living busy lives, a lot of things going on. God, help us to slow down our our minds and our hearts. God, thank you for the power of a group of people gathered together in the name of Jesus. Trusting not in what we can do, but what you do in and through us by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you would speak to us, to our hearts, speak to us individually and as a group through your word. God, we thank you for the blessing of prayer, the blessing of music, the opportunity to read and study your word. And God, let us never take that lightly. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know about you, but 1982 was a pretty great year. 1982, little babies Owen, Amanda, and Amanda were born, so it's a good year. Oklahoma suffered under some insufferable heat in the summer of 1982, Conan the Barbarian and E.T. were the top two movies that year. And unfortunately, some folks in this area down here may not even know Conan the Barbarian and E.T. But those were the top two movies uh, that year. There was also a man named Prince who released his fifth album, 1999, by show of hands. And with the greatest courage you've ever mustered, how many own 1999 by Prince? Look at that. Oh, that's so fantastic. And then Taylor Swift had to come along with 1989 and just screw up the whole, the whole thing. 1999, I was dreaming when I wrote this, so sue me if I go too fast, but life is just a party, and parties weren't meant to last. War is all around us. My mind says, prepare to fight. I hate to read this next part in church, but so if I got to die, I'm going to listen to my body tonight. And then it goes on. They say, 2000, party over, oops, out of time. So tonight, tonight I'm going to party like it's 1999. I wish I could seen that for you, but it just wouldn't work. And I sure love pastoring you all, so I couldn't show a video uh, of it this morning. But that, that song, now I know, rap, rap music last week and Prince this week, so there's no telling where we, go, where we go from here. But you understand the theology of that song. Not good theology, but you understand the theology of the song. If things are falling down around you, if the world's going to end in 2000, then live however you want. The theology of Prince's song is actually reflected in Scripture 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32, it says, this is not the Lord's way of doing things. This is a worldly way of doing things. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So you get the picture here, right? World's falling down around you. Doesn't seem like anything matters. War happening. Probably it's all going to end pretty soon. Feels like things are falling apart, If that's the case, and this life is all we have, then what do you do? You live it up. You do whatever you want, however you want, whenever you want. You live for now. You live for yourself because this world is all we have. It's a crumbling mess. It's probably going to end soon, so party like it's 1999. Now, the book of Revelation Revelation, the word revelation just means an unveiling or a revealing. What the book of Revelation does for the people in the first century and what it does for us is it lifts a veil. It it unveils something, it reveals something that we're able to see. And what we're able to see is this, that what we see in the world right now, that what we experience right now is not the end of the story it's not the only thing going on. Because if this is all that's going on, and this life is all that really matters, then you party like it's 1999. However, if there's something more going on, if there's something that's been revealed to us that is beyond what we're experiencing right now, beyond the dominance of our circumstances, then there might be another way that we live our lives. And what we find is the book of Revelation is about worship, and on your notes, on the back of your bulletin, you see that what it really is ultimately about is a competition for worship. The book of Revelation is about worship, but it's a competition for who or what we will actually worship. We have all been created for worship. You see that from the first page of the Bible to the very end of the Bible. And even if someone is not a religious person, doesn't give much thought to the Bible, we all worship something or someone. Something controls our life. Our life is devoted to something. The question is, what will we worship And the competition in the book of Revelation is will we worship God or will we worship something else, something in this world? So here's how this plays itself out. The first thing that we're gonna look at is worship God, not angels. Now we're gonna go to the end of the book of Revelation to pick up this. We're gonna go to Revelation chapter 22. It's gonna tie back to chapter one since that's our primary focus. But like a lot of books in the New Testament, really throughout the Bible, the beginning of the book, and the ending of the book form a framework that helps us make sense of what's going on throughout the document. That's exactly what happens in the book of Revelation. You read the beginning, you read the end. This is how most of you got through school. You read the first chapter and the last chapter, and everything in between was just if you had time to skim through it, you would skim through it. So, I know that hurts the hearts of the teachers in the room, but it's just reality. But there's something about that that works with this is because if you get the beginning, you get the end, it all kind of fits together. Revelation chapter 22, verses eight through nine is what we're gonna look at. I, John, so you hear the connection back to chapter one. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. So he's bringing to a conclusion what's happened. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down, look at the word, I fell down to worship at the feet of whom? The angel, of the angel who showed them to me, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am who? A fellow servant. That's exactly how John characterized himself at the beginning of Revelation, as a servant. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keeps the, keep the words of this book. Worship God. The end of Revelation 22, verse 9, is the subtitle for the whole book. You could circle Worship God. You could go back to the beginning of Revelation in your Bible, and you could write in Revelation 22, 9, end of the verse. That's the subtitle. That's what what holds it together. Is This angel is saying, don't worship me. I'm just a servant like you. Worship God. So we don't give our worship to anything or anyone that is an intermediate divine being. We don't give worship to angels. Now you say, well, I've never been tempted by that, Owen. I've I've never struggled with that, giving worship to angels. But here's where it gets interesting in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, when it says worship God, what we find is that those contexts of worshiping God include Jesus Christ in that worship. Jesus Christ is not portrayed in the book of Revelation as this intermediate spiritual being, this angel. Jesus Christ is portrayed clearly as God. And this is fascinating because here you have an early first century document, just like what we find in the rest of the New Testament, how this group of people coming from largely a Jewish background, giving worship to one God, now they are understanding Jesus Christ as God. And you may be here this morning, and that may be a tripping point for you. That may be one of those things you say, you know what? I understand that Jesus was a good person, but I've always struggled with the idea that, that he might be God. What you find is in the Gospels, those first few books of the New Testament, all throughout the letters in the New Testament, right up and maybe in the clearest way in the whole Bible. You find in the book of Revelation this idea that when it says worship God, we are talking about worship of Jesus Christ. Now, I can't just tell you that. I I need to show you how that happens. So go back to chapter 1. And this is a very, very big deal. The reason it's such a big deal is because there are many religious groups around who they appreciate Jesus They might even hold Jesus up as a pretty high figure, but the idea of Jesus as God, the idea of giving worship to Jesus is is off the radar. It's not allowed, but we're saying that when we read Revelation, we find it at the very heart that Jesus is God with us, that we are worshiping him. So I wanna show you how this works out. Back to verse four, okay? So we're going going back to the beginning, uh, chapter one, verse four. It says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace, and then we're going to find three different figures, so to speak, mentioned here, from him who is and who was and who is to come. So those phrases together are a common way of speaking. You find it typified in certain places in the Old Testament, a way of speaking of God who was and is and is to come. He's eternal. eternal. You find alpha and omega that comes up here in just a little bit in Revelation, but that same concept there. And then it says after that, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Researchers, scholars have a terrible time trying to make out who are these seven spirits before his throne. Some people think it refers to the seven archangels that are often mentioned in scripture. Quite possible, you make a pretty strong uh, argument for that. Just as likely, though, and I want to be careful not read something into the text that I really want to be there, but you can make a very strong argument that the seven spirits here is actually a reference to the Holy Spirit. You find in the book of Isaiah, as the Holy Spirit is mentioned in Isaiah, that oftentimes the Holy Spirit he will be characterized by seven qualities by seven things that the spirit does. 7 as we know in the book of revelation is a very popular number. It's a popular number all throughout the ancient world but it, but it references that idea of perfection or completion. And so the reference here may very well be a veiled reference to the holy spirit when it talks about the seven spirits who are before his throne. Can't take that one to the bank, but there's a really strong argument you can make. And it works really well if we're talking about God as Trinity, if that's, if that's the case. So before his throne, and then go into the beginning of verse 5, and from Jesus Christ. So very likely what we have here is a reference to God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, Jesus Christ. Then go down to verse 12. And I want, to see, I want you to see, next week we're going to come back and we're going to focus directly on verses 5 and 6 how Jesus is portrayed here, but let's skip down to verse 12 just for a second. So we go down to verse 12, and we find four characteristics, four characterizations of Jesus in in these verses. The first is, where is he located? Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. We find out these are references to, to the church. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man so where is jesus he is present in the midst of the churches this matters for a couple of reasons if your church is being persecuted if your church is on the edge of no longer existing because the roman empire is closing in on you because your people are starting to give up ranks you ask a very good question and the question you ask is where is god in the midst of this and what you find out very quickly is he's right in the middle of it. He is present with the churches. It equally tells us that as a church, no true church exists without Jesus at the very core of it. You can gather together all you want as an institution, but what we find in Revelation is Jesus is present with the churches, his power is at work there. There's an interesting story in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4. The Philistines are attacking the Israelites, and ultimately, they take the Ark of the Covenant. Eli, who was the priest there at the time, he falls over as dead. Both of his kids die. And a lady who was Phineas' wife, so she was Eli's daughter-in-law, she's giving birth at this point, and she ends up giving her child the name Ichabod. And Ichabod there is a reference to the fact that the glory of God had departed from his people. In the Old Testament, this is what makes the exile so bad, is it seems that God has left his people. I wanted to ask if anyone had ever thought about naming their child Ichabod, but that seemed a little bit off the, uh, off the radar. But the idea that she names this child Ichabod because the glory of God seemingly has left his people. The New Testament, is one long answer to that woman's cry. It looks like God has left his people, and then we find out very clearly he has not. He has come fully to his people through Jesus Christ. So where is Jesus in Revelation? He is present among the churches. Next, in verse 13, it says, he's in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. So what we find out here is who Jesus is. We find out his identity. And right here, if you can make a note in your phone or if you don't have a study Bible that provides some of those references, you need to write in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. One of Jesus' most common designations for himself in the Gospels is as the Son of Man. But this is a weighted phrase. Son of man is a reference as we go back to Daniel chapter 7 to the coming of the Messiah, to how God will come among his people to bring victory. I want you to see these verses, Daniel seven thirteen to 14. Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. We can't miss the connection there with Revelation. And he came to the Ancient of Days, to the Heavenly Father, and was presented before him. And then he goes on in the next verse and says, and to him... I know the print gets smaller here, so I'll try to make sure I read it out. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. What was the angel so worried about in Revelation? That service would be given to him even though he was just a servant. What's it referenced here? That people will serve this one who's like a son of man. They would serve him as dominion, as an everlasting dominion, alpha and omega, which shall not pass away And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Revelation chapter 1 verse 13 is right at the heart of this Daniel 7 phrase, which is right at the heart of everything Jesus' ministry was about. It's amazing the way that we see the goodness of God's word at work there as those things come together. So we know where Jesus is. We know who he is. And next we find out how he is clothed. Now, a word to the ladies on behalf of the men in the room. The clothing here is all about function, not about style or how it looks. So, your wife owns a pair of shoes, and she says, oh, these shoes hurt my feet. I don't know anything about this. This is hypothetical. If, if something like this were to happen, this is how it would play out. She owns a pair of shoes. She says, oh, these shoes hurt my feet. Well, sweetheart, I love you. I would love to buy you another pair of shoes. Yes, but they're so cute. Yes, but they hurt your feet. Oh, yeah, but they look good. So you would have your feet be in pain because they look good, even though they're not functional for what shoes are, which is to walk and to go places, but you would still wear them because they look good. Yes, well, then I'll buy you another pair. I love that you love them, even though normally I think of shoes as what would function. You know, It doesn't matter what they look like. What happens here is when Jesus is clothed in these verses, we get caught up in how it looks. The purpose is how it functions. So don't get misled in these verses. It's it's, it's, what is the function of this. So look there in verse 14. Actually, in verse 13, I skipped too far ahead. In verse 13, there's this one like a son of man. How's he clothed? He's clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. I can't tell you what the robe looked like, but the function, what's happening here is this is a reference to priestly, to a priest clothes. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament tells us what it is for Jesus to be the great high priest. And not just the great high priest, but also the sacrifice. For our sins. So, what John is doing in the book of Revelation through this revelation that he's given is he's making sure that we understand Jesus as priest here. And then there's a reference to the golden sash around his chest. This is keenly imagery. This is keenly imagery. This is the idea that we found in Daniel 7 earlier that he will be given dominion, that he will be given a kingdom, and it will be a kingdom that never ends. So, how is he clothed? He's clothed as a priest and as a king depending on kind of the background that you come from in church circles it's not uncommon for Jesus to be referred to as prophet priest and king as we understand who he is and how he functions and that idea prophet priest and king is right at the heart of revelation and this portrayal of Jesus and why worship is given to him Okay, so we know where he is, he's with the church, we know who he is, he's the one like the Son of Man, he's the Messiah. We know how he's clothed as a priest and as a king, and then finally, we know what he looks like, or sort of, what he looks like. Verse 14, the hairs of his head were white, like white, or, uh, like white wool, like snow. Okay, we don't have time to get derailed here, but I just want to make a point here. White is in reference to purity. Purity. This text has been grossly misused at times, trying to tie Jesus to a European appearance, to a white Anglo appearance. That is a gross misuse of this text it has no bearing on what it means to follow Jesus it has no bearing on what we actually know Jesus to look like we know what Jesus looked like he looked like whatever he looked like in the picture of the grandparents church that we grew up in so you think about whatever your grandparents church looked like in the picture that Jesus had that's what he looked like this is not a reference to Jesus's white appearance in fact he was probably not white looking white like I do or like what most of us do so, so not to make a to belabor that point but that's a gross misuse of this text to use it in that way so it says that he's white he's pure like snow his eyes were like a flame of fire this is a piercing look this is Hebrews chapter 4 that the word of God is able to pierce that, that it's true and right and able to see his feet are like burnished bronze refined in a furnace uh, this is drawing on some roman empire imagery of the conqueror of the victor except jesus doesn't come in like a roman empire he comes in giving his life how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news his feet are the one he serves that's how he brings victory then it says his voice was like the roar of many waters if he stood by the seashore and there's all these waves coming in what happens that sound drowns out all other sounds that's all you hear is the sound of the waves coming in it drowns out it shows this this all-reaching power of of his voice of, of the sound of Jesus drowning out everything else all of the of the cosmos give their their honor and their worship to Jesus in his right hand he held seven stars a little bit more Difficult to find out what's going on here. Seven stars is a very common ancient reference to what they knew of as the seven planets. I grew up knowing of nine planets. Kids now know of either eight planets or 10 planets or hundreds of planets. It's, our poor solar system has such a, identity crisis uh, right now. But, but seven stars was a very common reference in the ancient world to the seven known planets, to the way that they knew the solar system to exist. So this probably has something to do with the fact that he's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole solar system, all of the cosmos in his control. Maybe it's a reference to messengers in the church, but I think much more it's he's got the whole world in, it, in his hands. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Jesus fights his battles with words, not swords. We're going to talk more about that next week. And then finally, his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that he's able to show forth the radiance of God that that we see in Jesus, God's goodness. Go down to verse 17. Look what happens next. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. Now, you've got to think to Revelation 22, He does this again. He falls at the feet of an angel. Here, though, I fell at his feet, though dead. Jesus doesn't resist his worship at this point. What does he do? He lays his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am. Remember the psalm we sang earlier? The great I am. The book of Revelation is so connected to the Gospel of John. You find so many images. The Gospel of John, if you're not familiar with that book in the New Testament, the Gospel of John is famous for its I am references. Jesus will say, I am, and then he'll fill in the blank. The book of Revelation is, is picking up on that idea right here. I am the first and the last. God the Father has just been called the Alpha and Omega earlier. He's drawing on that. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. He has all power over life and death. So does Revelation call us to give worship to God? Yes. Does the Revelation make sure that we understand that Jesus is to be given that worship? Yes. Do we believe that Jesus Christ is God with us? Absolutely. That is at the core of what we see throughout the New Testament, and I love the way it shows up in the book of Revelation. So you worship God not angels. Now, obviously, we gave most of our time to that, so these next two are going to be much shorter. But we go to the next one. So we give worship to God, not angels. Number two, we worship God, not idols. In the ancient world, the Roman Empire had plenty of idols at work. Christians were thought strange because they did not have an idol. Sometimes we have a few documents that even reference Christians as atheists, not God. They didn't have an idol, so it looked like they were atheists, that they didn't believe in a God. Idols are predominant. They're at work here. You find this a lot in the prophets in the Old Testament. We know that Revelation is what? It's a prophecy. So it's going to reference this. It's going to call us to worship God, not idols. Very quickly, Revelation chapter 17, if you want to turn over there, we're going to read a couple of verses. If not, the verses are going to be up on the screen. But what we're wanting to tie in here is that when Revelation talks about the Roman Empire, it doesn't directly reference Rome. What it references is ancient Babylon. And ancient Babylon, we know from the prophets, was the place of idols, it was the place of giving worship to something other than the one true God. This is why the people being sent to Babylon, it was such a bad thing. Revelation 17, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. You say, what does that refer to? Well, the next verses tell us what that refers to. It says, after that, who is seed on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk and then skip down to verse 5 on her forehead was written a name of mystery Babylon the great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations you say well that doesn't say much about idolatry But what we find is in the New Testament, idolatry is directly connected to sexual immorality. Here's our reference. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, 22 to 25. Just listen to these verses. I think they may be on the screen as well. Listen to this reference and make the connection with Revelation. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What's it talking about? Idols. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And then look at the next word. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forevermore. Amen. What's the book of Revelation? It's a battle. Will we worship the creator or will we worship the creature? It's still our battle. This is still the battle we face. Students, and all the way up to the oldest adults we have, but especially students, it doesn't matter how pleasurable, profitable, or powerful something is, you do not give your worship to it other than God. It may be pleasurable, it may be profitable, and it may be powerful, but it is not worthy of your worship. We worship God, not idols. Number three, we worship God, not Rome or Caesar. And this really gets to the heart of what's happening in the book of Revelation. Uh, if you can get back to chapter one, we're going to go back to Revelation chapter one and begin to, to wrap up these verses that we're looking at. We're going to go back to verse nine where we started reading this morning. But the book of Revelation, and we want to make sure as we read this book, we're centering in its, its historical context that the Roman Empire is the dominating force, and there's a lot of jabs in the New Testament, especially in the book of Revelation, that are these countercultural jabs back at the Roman Empire to show that we worship God, not this human government. Verse nine, Revelation chapter one, verse nine. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So John's saying, I'm with you, I'm on your side. He was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Guys, can you go to that map? I may have gotten the slides out of order, but there's a map which is very, very small, I know, and it's very hard to see. But if you look off to the right side, what you have is modern-day Turkey, and then on the western side of modern-day Turkey, ancient Asia Minor, you have that grouping of little churches uh, that represent the churches in revelation, and then there 's an arrow coming in from the northwest pointing down, showing you kind of where the island of Patmos was located there, just off the southwest coast. There's t- debated scholarly research on this, but it seems pretty clear that the Roman government, at different times and for different reasons, would banish people or send people to this island. And so, John is there because, in some way, he has defied or gone against the Roman government. It says that he was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Very simply, John counted the word of God and the testimony of Jesus as more important than he did the Roman government just the simplest way to state it verse 10 I was in the spirit on the Lord's day that phrase the Lord's day is another shot at the Roman Empire the Roman Empire had a day called Sebaste, S-E-B-A-S-T-E, Sebasti. It was a day once a month when honor was given to the emperor. It was, it was a special day. And so John is saying, hey, you got a special day? We got a special day too. It's called the Lord's Day. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's Day. First Corinthians 16, the book of Acts makes pretty clear that this day is Sunday, that the people are meeting together now many of them probably continue to meet on saturday on their on their jewish sabbath but he's referencing sunday here it was in the spirit of the lord's day and i heard behind me a voice like a trumpet the roman empire used trumpets to announce their announce their victorious processions dr kelly talked about this when he referenced second corinthians a few few weeks ago john says you got a trumpet i got a better trumpet and then he tells them this trumpet said in verse 11 write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches he says there are groups of people out there who are not giving their worship to the roman empire they're giving their worship to god and this group of churches they have a motto and their motto is jesus is lord and what we find out is that a person can only say Jesus is Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is very clear about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. What John is doing in Revelation is he is calling the people to live by the power of the Holy Spirit and to say we are going to orient our lives to this phrase, Jesus is Lord. We worship Jesus, not any human institution. No government, no human institution, no human emperor receives our worship. It is only given to Jesus. We say Jesus is Lord. So we worship God, not angels, We worship God, not idols. We worship God, not Rome, not Caesar, not any human institution. So there's this competition for worship, and then we're going to close with this. There's a call to active worship. If you say, I agree with that. I want to count myself as a worshiper of the one true God. I give worship to Jesus. What does that look like? On your notes, there are two things. The first is that we worship personally. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 it says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. I hope Romans 10:9 makes sense to you in a way that it never has before after you have a chance to study the book of Revelation. Notice what they're saying. They're saying, you confess Jesus as Lord. He is due all of my worship, nothing else. If you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So let's make this extremely simple this morning. If you are here, have you truly worshiped God by confessing that Jesus is Lord and believing that he has defeated death, that he raised Jesus from the dead, just like Gabe showed us in the water that he died and he rose again. That is worship. You say, that sounds like salvation. Yes, it is, because it is. The greatest act of worship that we give to God is when we say, you are Lord and nothing else. I give all of myself to you. And if you have not done that, I call you to worship him this morning, that he is worthy of your worship, he is worthy of your life. Don't party like it's 1999. There's more to this world, there's more to this life than your circumstances, there's more to this life than what you just see. Give your worship to God. And if we do that, personal worship then leads to number two in your notes, it leads to corporate worship. That we will worship corporately, we're going to end with this set of verses. Hebrews chapter 10. If you'd like to turn there, if you're quick in your Bible and you want to go to, the, or your phone lets you get there, Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to read verses 23 to 25. They'll be up on the screen as well. But what is happening is remember, John writes this revelation. He gives this revelation to the churches. These are the people who, Who have gathered together under the banner, Jesus is Lord. What are we doing this morning? Why would you come together like this this morning? In our weakest moments, we come together to please somebody else. In our weakest moments, we come together because it's our ritual and it's something we're supposed to do. But what we have done in gathering for worship is against everything else that might seem to make sense in the world, against all of our circumstances, we have gathered together under this banner that says Jesus is Lord. We will worship him, and it is an extremely countercultural thing to do, to say, I will gather with other people, we will confess this together, and we will say this is the purpose for our lives. So you get to the book of Hebrews, which has tons of connections with the book of Revelation, you find this. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What's the danger for the churches of Revelation? That they would give up hope, that they would drop their confession. The book of Hebrews says don't do that. How do we not do that? Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Here's what worship allows us worship allows us to see something, to see something with our hearts, with our minds, with our, to see something that we couldn't see otherwise were it not for God's work in our lives. In other words, if I went through my week, and I just looked at the people around me, if I just looked at my circumstances, if I just watched the news, if I just read Facebook, this is what I would see. But more than that, God has revealed something. And he has revealed that he is greater than all those things, that he is worthy of our worship. And so we don't sit through worship, we engage in worship. And we engage in worship as an act of battle as an act of spiritual warfare, as a competition for what will we give our lives to. We will give our lives to the glory of God because he is worthy of that. And I pray that God will do that in our lives individually, that he will do that in our church. Here in just a second, I'm gonna pray for us, and then we're gonna sing a song. Worship is way more than music, but it's a great opportunity to gather with people and to sing songs of worship. We're gonna do that. Understand that that is a countercultural thing to do. When you sound like me, you don't naturally sing songs with other people. But you do when that song declares the greatness of God and you're doing it with other people gathered together saying, Jesus is Lord. If you would like to know more about Jesus, If you want to know more about what it means to say, Jesus is Lord, I want to pray for you. We'll have people here. If you're looking for a church to worship with, we want to pray for you, pray with you. However God is leading you during this time, we're going to come to this time of worshiping him in response to his word. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. God, I admit that there have been many times this last week that I have been tempted to worship something else, to give my life to something else. We are prone to wonder. But God, what we see revealed so clearly in the book of Revelation is that you are worthy of worship. And God, I pray that for every person here that they would be able in all sincerity to say that they are a worshiper of God Not that they attend a church, not that they have a religious background, but that they are engaged in worshiping you and that their confession is Jesus is Lord. And God, let that be true of our church. It's easy for us to be known for many things other than that, but God, let us be known as a place of vibrant biblical worship all because of your glory and your goodness and the hope that we have through Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.